Today we are continuing our seven-week series through the book of Esther. We have been exploring what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes the people of God. The events of the book of Esther take place as the people of God are living under the Persian Empire. They are stripped of their land, their temple has been destroyed, and they are living at the mercy of a foreign government. But as we've said, even even under these conditions, God is advancing his purposes. He is preparing the world for the coming Messiah. And God called his people to submit to the empire, to honor the empire, to serve and pray for the empire, to seek the welfare of the empire. But as we saw last week, that is not how Mordecai responds when a man named Haman is promoted to a position of authority over him. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, that is, the supreme court of Persia, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So, verse 6, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. Haman then casts pur. He casts lots to determine when this genocide would take place. Essentially, he is rolling the dice to determine when to exterminate the Jewish people. And thankfully, the genocide is delayed for some 11 months. And I think we should see the hand of God at work there. As it says in Proverbs 16.33, you can cast lots all you want, but every decision is from the Lord. Now, obviously, Haman was culpable for this murderous jealousy, plotting genocide against an entire people because of one person's disrespect is pretty much the definition of a disproportionate response. But at the same time, Mordecai was not being faithful in refusing to show honor to Haman. The king was not asking Mordecai to worship Haman. He was simply asking Mordecai to acknowledge Haman's authority. Now, as Justin mentioned last week, Mordecai had some pretty good reasons to dislike Haman. Haman was an Agagite, an Agagite, an ancient enemy of the Jewish people. So so to, to understand what Mordecai was faced with, imagine that 100 years from now, the vice president of the United States is a direct descendant of Osama bin Laden. How willing would you be to show honor to such a person? It would be very difficult. Listen, and, and this, is, this is hard for me to say. The Bible commands that we trust the Lord enough to show honor to governing authorities. We trust the Lord enough to show honor to governing authorities. Does that mean we can never resist them? Of course not. The book of Esther is about resisting authority. But it is not a story about dishonoring authority or rebelling against authority. 
There's a difference, and our posture matters. Now, to his credit, Mordecai responds appropriately to the news of this impending genocide. At the beginning of chapter 4, he repents. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This is the pattern all throughout the Bible. Those who repent will be redeemed. Those who make themselves low will be raised up. Those who accept their judgment before God will be delivered from their judgment by God. And so Mordecai was an unfaithful schemer. But now Mordecai responds like a faithful Jew, like a faithful follower of God. He tears up the garments, the very garments that that marked his exalted position. He even prioritizes repenting over returning to his seat at the king's gate. And I, I think we can see in that a demonstrated willingness to give up what he wanted most. What Mordecai wanted most was power and position. And here he finds himself powerless and positionless. But rather than than frantically grasping for whatever power he can find, Mordecai releases his grip and entrusts himself to the Lord. And remarkably, the rest of the Jews follow his lead. Like a good spiritual leader, Mordecai is the first to repent. So Mordecai is humbled. He's brought low. In fact, I think Mordecai is symbolically dead. That's what sackcloth and ashes represent, symbolic death. But there's another indication that Mordecai is symbolically dead. And we see this in the fact that he is prohibited from entering into the king's gate. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, it says, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now, to understand what's going on there, we need to compare Esther chapter 4 with Israel's temple system. To be unclean under the temple system was to be symbolically dead. And that, that sounds like a really big deal, right? But, but it was really pretty easy to become unclean. Uncleanness was a common experience for the average Israelite. To be unclean under the temple system was, was really just, it really just meant that you were ritually impure. You were temporarily pro- prohibited from participating in temple activities. So if you wanted to regain access to the temple, you needed to be cleansed. As a symbolically dead person, you needed to be symbolically resurrected. Now, take a look at the second to last page in your bulletin. I have some diagrams for you. Israel's temple was arranged in three different tiers of holiness. The courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And each tier of holiness demanded greater levels of purity, greater levels of cleanness. And we see the same dynamic in Esther chapter 4. 
The description of the palace invites this comparison. We see the same three tiers within the king's palace. Mordecai is unclean. He's symbolically dead. Thus, he cannot enter into the palace gate, which corresponds to the temple gate. However, Esther does have access to the king's palace, which corresponds to the holy place. Esther's problem in this passage, Esther's dilemma here, is that she does not have access to the throne room, which corresponds to the holy of holies. Verse 11. If any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. If only Esther could access the Holy of Holies without perishing, perhaps the Jews could be cleansed and delivered. In other words, Esther is like the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The Holy of Holies was only open to Israel's high priest, and even then, only once per year. On the Day of Atonement. So like the, like the high priest, Esther is going to clothe herself in special garments and draw near to the throne room with great trepidation. She is going to enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people to plead for their cleansing and deliverance. And she is understandably hesitant to do so. But Mordecai is adamant. It's time for Esther to speak up. It's time for Esther to stop hiding her identity as a Jew and plead for her people before the king. Who knows, Mordecai says, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, it seems as though the Lord has made you queen for this exact purpose, to bear witness, to bear faithful witness. So Esther calls upon every Jew in Susa to hold a three-day fast. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, if, if Esther is like the high priest, then we shouldn't be surprised to see that Esther is also like Jesus. She is willing to bear witness even unto death. She is willing to face death in order to deliver her people. Like Jesus, Esther is going to fast for three days while everything hangs in the balance. And then she will be raised and all the people with her. Esther chapter five, verse one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Esther once again wins favor with the king. So Mordecai and Esther, I think they, I think they are learning that the strategy of cultural assimilation 
whereby we abdicate our responsibility to live distinctly before the nations. Whereby we pretend not to be God's people. The strategy of cultural assimilation is not only dangerous, it's impotent. It does not bear fruit. It cannot bear fruit. Why? Well, because the Christian faith is a total faith. The Christian faith is a total faith. We cannot simply exist as private members of the people of God. The Christian faith claims everything about us and everything about the world around us. Our minds, our our emotions, our bodies, our homes, our bank accounts, our relationships, our jobs, our politics. The Christian faith is a total faith, which means that it is a public faith that makes public claims on the world. So like Mordecai, we need to repent insofar as we've been attempting to privatize our faith. We need to repent insofar as we've taken lightly our membership within the people of God, the church. We need to repent insofar as we've hidden our true identity at the expense of those who do not yet know Jesus. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai went public. And he went public at the very moment when going public had become deadly. Mordecai publicly identifies himself with a group of people who are now facing extinction. And of course, Esther demonstrates that same courage, that same boldness. Esther and Mordecai are learning to trust the sovereignty of God in the midst of exile. Esther and Mordecai are learning to trust the sovereignty of God in the midst of exile. God's name is never mentioned in this book. He never speaks. He is never spoken to. But we can see his sovereign hand at work. And I think so can Mordecai and Esther. And and when they see the sovereign hand of God at work, that is when they find the courage to stop hiding, to stop abdicating, to stop assimilating, and to bear faithful witness. And likewise, we need to see and trust the sovereign hand of God at work in the midst of our circumstances. The book of Esther teaches us that we cannot expect to have God speak to us directly every time we face difficulty. We cannot expect God to perform a miracle every time we're in trouble. More often than not, God gives us the freedom to fail. He gives us the opportunity to choose between unfaithfulness and faithfulness. And we can either interpret that as a sign of his absence or we can trust his sovereign hand. We can trust that like a good father, God is giving us room to grow and mature. He has a plan. 
He is gently guiding human history toward a fitting conclusion. But at the same time, he's using us to bring it about. Just like Esther, God places us in particular cities, in particular neighborhoods, in particular vocations, with particular spheres of influence, so that we can learn to bear faithful witness. We may never be called upon to bear witness in the face of genocide, but we are nonetheless called to bear witness. We may never have to say, if I perish, I perish. But we may have to say, if I'm shunned, I'm shunned. If I'm uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. If I fail, I fail. If I lose my job, I lose my job. God is still good. God is still in control. God is still guiding human history to a fitting conclusion. And God is still using my small act of faithfulness to accomplish that. Or in other words, I have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, to conclude, I want to ask and answer a question. In what context does Esther choose to bear witness? In what context? Let's look again at chapter 5, verse 3. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Esther wins favor with the king, but he doesn't just welcome her into the throne room. He doesn't simply agree not to kill her. He basically promises to give her whatever she wants. And so we we would expect her to just make the ask. There it is, Esther. Make the ask. Please don't let Haman kill my people. She doesn't. She doesn't do that. Verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So the king and Haman come to the feast. And once again, verse 6. What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. There it is again, Esther. Make the ask. Verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Why is she doing this? Why is she doing this? My honest answer is that I don't know. Uh, But I do know that the decision to delay her request for tomorrow's feast will prove itself very important. Because as we will see next week, the king is going to remember the loyalty of Mordecai, back in chapter 2, remember? The king is going to remember that in the middle of the night, this night, in between her two feasts. I also think Esther is somehow using these feasts in order to outwit Haman. She's winning the favor of both the king and Haman because what she has to say will ultimately require the king to choose between the two of them. She's keeping her friends close and her enemies closer. Esther is Eve. You've already said that. 
But Esther is Eve and Haman is the serpent, except this time she is deceiving him. She is the righteous one deceiving the serpent. Back to that original question, though. In what, in what context does Esther choose to bear faithful witness? In the context of hospitality. She prepares a feast. Esther bears witness at a table with food and wine and conversation. And there's a lot we can learn from this. Specifically, there's, there's a lot we can learn about evangelism from this. Every Sunday morning, God, God speaks to us. And sometimes he has difficult things to say to us, things we struggle to hear, <laughs> things we struggle to hear. But he always does so within the context of his own hospitality. God says hard things to us, but he always says them at a table. And we are called to extend that hospitality to our neighbors. We are also looking for opportunities to feast with friends and neighbors. And sometimes it will take several meals before the time is right to tell them what we believe about Jesus. And that's okay. The most important thing is that we are willing. The most important thing is that we trust the sovereign hand of God in the midst of our circumstances and that we bear faithful witness to his goodness and grace in the world. We must believe that we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, for such a purpose as this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust you. We trust your sovereign hand. And we struggle to. So we ask that you would teach us to trust you even more. You are in control. You are still in control. And you are guiding human history toward a fitting conclusion. We trust you. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to perish in order to deliver us from certain death. We want to live with the same kind of courage and conviction and humility. Holy Spirit, be near to us as we learn to walk in these paths. Give us faith. Give us the faith we need to bear witness and to allow uh, this, this total faith to shape us totally. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.